Well, good morning. You sound like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Morning, morning, morning. Good morning. There you go. You know, um, if you're just joining us, we are studying through the Gospel of John, and, and today we'll be finishing up John 15 and starting John chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to John 15. And if you're new to the Bible, like, um, and you don't own one, like, we have Bibles in the, like, at the table by the front doors there. Feel free to grab one of those. Like, you can go get it now if you want. Um, if you want to just grab it on your way home, um, feel free to take that. That's our gift to you, and we just ask that you read it. Um, I would suggest you start reading the Gospel of John where we are, I mean, because um, it's a, just a great place to start. But it's, it's kind of in the like, last like, quarter of the, new t- of the Bible, so if you kind of flip through there, there's these long books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. If you see any of those, um, John's kind of in the middle there. So um, we're in John chapter 15 today. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this kind of mysterious reality that Jesus talks about that when, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ after his resurrection through the work of the Holy Spirit that he pours out on this earth, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we, we enter into this like kind of mysterious union with Christ. In Colossians, Paul talks about it as being a mystery that we don't kind of fully understand it. But what Jesus said back in chapter 15 or 14 was that we were we would be in Christ and Christ would be in us. And the realities of that like, are, are, are so many. I just, you know, I can't even like list them all. I couldn't even like cover them all in my sermon from a couple weeks ago. But what Jesus did like, in the text we looked at last week was he, he described it as being like as, as being, the branches being related to a grapevine. And that there's this deep and organic unity that we have with Jesus Christ. And it's only by like abiding in Jesus Christ. That means to dwell, to live in, to, to remain in. It's only by like abiding in Jesus Christ as the, like, as the vine and we being the branches that we can find life and find flourishing and find, find fruitfulness and experience like the depths of the love of God and the depths of joy that comes from like being a part of his purposes and peace that comes from him. Those are all things that were, that were in the text in the, at the end of 14 and in the beginning of 15. That it's in our union with Christ that's like us being branches in the vine that we find our life and purpose. You know, what we're going to find out today as we kind of wrap up 15 is that uh, is that Jesus is going to continue to build on that idea of our union with Christ. But what he's going to basically tell us today is that vine that, we've, that we need to find ourselves in if we're going to experience life doesn't grow in Eden anymore. That vine lives in this world. And, and if we're abiding in Christ and we're living in this world like as God's people, we can expect to receive similar treatment to what Jesus received. And sometimes Jesus was accepted, but like the end result kind of of Jesus' life, this is the night before, this is the night actually that he does get betrayed, that he's telling his disciples these things. Some of the things that we find out is that the world doesn't always respond um, to Christ or those who are abiding in him in the way that we would like. And so what Jesus, Jesus is preparing his disciples so that they're not caught off guard when that day comes. And so as we look at our text this morning, it's going to really break out into two sections. It's, it's the, the cost of our union with Christ in, in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 15, and then the conduct of our union with Christ in chapter 15, 26 through 16, 4. 
Like, I wouldn't like hang too much on those two points just because they were the best I came up with, but I'm completely not satisfied with them at this point. But, but if you like to break notes, that's kind of how it breaks out because you have Jesus describing, like, what is it really going to look like to abide with Christ in this world? And then how should we live in light of that? So I'm going to read the first part of that, John 15, 18 through 25 this morning. So if you could stand with me as I read, um, then I'll pray and we'll get into our text together. This is God's word, the word of Jesus for his church. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and that he is the one that hides us um, and protects us and covers us, and that when we come to faith in him, we are found in him, and all of his righteousness belongs to us, and, and that he gives us his spirit. And so, Father, I just pray that your spirit would work this morning to empower me to speak, empower us to hear that we would, um, I guess that we would come, like, leave here with a new, renewed reality and commitment to you as Lord because of um, the things that we hear here this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, if you look up at verse 17, I didn't read it, um, but if you look at verse 17, the, the verse right before what we read, Jesus ends in verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. And then he starts 18, if the world hates you. You know, there's this contrast that Jesus is developing. The, the, the people of God that are called by, by Jesus Christ and abide in Jesus Christ are to be this community of people that's known by, like, his love for each other. But then Jesus isn't just like, um, that's what I'm looking for. He's not naive about, like, what life in this world is like, because then he starts off in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You know, there's this reality that Jesus is talking about, that if we abide in Jesus Christ, if we are finding our life in him, if we are finding our identity in him, like, it's not unlikely that the world will hate us. It's a pretty strong word. It's not unlikely that the world will hate us. And he says, and when that happens, know that they hated me before they hated you, that the reason why they're hating you is because of your identification with me. Now, before I go on, I, I think it's like helpful for me to uh, probably define what I mean by the world or what Jesus means by the world when he says, if the world hates you, you know, because some of us might think when we hear the word world, we're thinking about this planet that we live on. You know, Jesus isn't talking about the creation or the planet that we live on. Like, like God's, God was the one who created this earth and he created the universe around it. And it's God's good gift to us. And, and like the, the world and, and the things that fill it are testimonies over and over and over of his grace and his kindness and his creativity and his power and his beauty and his wonder. And, and this world that we live in is this huge gift of God to us, even though 
It's been like marred by our rebellion against God, even though like our hearts tend to take what this good gift of God and twist it around and and like lead us into like false worship or lead us into like pursuing things besides himself. But at the end of the day, like God's, this world is God's good gift to us. He's not talking about like the planet, like the physical creation. Now, nor is he talking about all the people that live in the world. Not every single person that lives on this planet like hates like Jesus and hates the followers of Jesus, right? Like we know that. But what he is talking about is this world system that falls over, that, that's fallen over this world. The, the, and I, in my notes, I've described it this way. The idolatries, those false things that we worship, that we seek to find our meaning and our significance in, and our ideologies, the ideologies that flow out of those things. All of these like belief systems that stand opposed to God and opposed to the gospel. You know, when you, if you look through the Gospel of John and in our, in our study of the Gospel of John, you know, if you're wondering why I have a stool, um, I, uh, I, my leg is, is really painful and so I have to sit down a lot, but um, I also can't talk without walking around very well, so <laughs> it's going to be this fine balance. If I collapse out here, you guys are dismissed, you know, call 911 or something. So I'm going to switch back and forth. It's not for some weird dramatic effect. Or somebody told me this morning they thought I was just trying to be like one of the cool pastors that sits there and like, you know, does his thing, you know. So. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. I'm old and in pain. And so um, the exact opposite of cool. So uh, I don't know. Being old is kind of cool. Like you bring wisdom. But anyway. The... Uh, but John has talked about the world at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He talks about how, how Jesus is the one who created the world. And he describes Jesus as the light. And the light came into the world. And it says, and that the, the darkness didn't overpower the light. Like, he describes this world and the, and the systems that, are, that kind of envelop the world as being darkness. You know, that idea of darkness comes with it, this idea of evil. And in fact, Jesus talks about these things in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, 19 and 20, he, he says this. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Talking about himself. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So what Jesus is talking about and what we're talking about in this idea of the world, that the light has come into the world, is it's, this, it's the world systems that are characterized by darkness and blindness and evil and sin to varying degrees. And what Jesus says, if the, if the world, if those world systems of the idols of this world, the ideologies of this world, if they hate you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You, like the idols and idolatries of this world and the ideologies of this world, like oppose anyone that fails to conform. And we feel that, right? We feel that all around us every single day. Look what Jesus says next. And this is the reason why, like, we feel that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. This is verse 19. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, you're different, church. He's talking to his disciples, who, and we'll see this later on, who laid the foundation for the establishment of his church. That's us. God has chosen us out of the world, and if we were of the world, the world would love its own. 
There's one like sure-proof way to make sure your life goes smooth and you don't ever have to experience hardship for the sake of Christ, and that's simply to just be like everybody else in the world. It's one of the temptations that's before us all the time, especially as, um, as we feel that pressure begin to build on us more and more and more in our culture that seems to be moving far away from God. But that's not why God chose us. It's not why God saved us. He saved us to bring us out of the world. We're to, be, we're to follow him. We're to be shaped by his word. We're to, be, we're to be shaped by him and abide in him and find our life in him. And if they mistreated Jesus, what Jesus tells us is they're going to mistreat us. You know, so the history, you don't have to read very far in human history. And even in the history of the Bible, like the church, the faithful church in this world has always been misunderstood, mistreated, and persecuted by, this, by the world system and the ideologies that shape the people under it. You know, it began in the first century. You have, you have all these different parties in Jesus' day. You have the Sadducees, who were kind of like the religious like, progressives. You have the Pharisees, who were like the religious conservatives. The Sadducees were, were like accommodationists that just like bought into the Roman system, which was this whole other pressure upon the church. The Pharisees were like the, the, like the nationalistic ones, like we're going to establish our own country again. So the church is getting it from all sides the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there's this pressure. You know, in the 600s, like, I mean, before even, like, before even Christ came and, and after, like, you had Hinduism. In the 600s, you have the rise of Islam, and, and the church has suffered under the hands of Islam. Even the church even suffered under the so-called church. Like, persecuted the, the so-called church, persecuted the faith, faithful church. You know, and then you have like, like, I could just spend all day listing them, right? Like you have communism and Marxism and I'll even throw it out there, capitalism. And you have like all these other isms out there that seek to like press us into their mold. And if we fail to conform, there's like consequences for that. You know, I think in today's age, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be a, like a, a political like science master or any of those things, but I just feel it. It doesn't take me long to read it, but on one side you have, and I'm just going to characterize it as like the people that are just like completely like sold out to identity politics, right? On the other side you have like the Christian nationalists, and you know our, our temptation is, is to like run from one to the other, or one from one and go to the other. You know when I was a uh, it was probably about this time, like many years ago when Rachel and I were first married, we went and visited my grandparents up in Wisconsin, and it was hunting season. It was deer hunting season. And I, my dad hunted for deer. Um, I've known deer hunters. In fact, when we started the church, it was kind of funny because we were pretty small. There was a few women in the church that hunted, but most of the hunters were men, and, except for Marv and I. And so during hunting season, it would be like Marv and I and all of the women. Um, <laughs> it was, it was kind of funny. But, um, but yeah, up at up in, uh, up in Wisconsin, they hunt de deer differently than they do here because it's all like farmland and there's these little patches of like forest in the middle of these fields and the patches of the forest aren't very big. They're about, probably about as big as like a city block and we were driving up to my grandma's house and I saw, it looked like a, a Revolutionary War reenactment because there was all of these people like, I'm, I'm not kidding, this is, a, this is true. There was all these people like dressed in their like orange vests, right? Like they were the red coats and they all had their shotguns like, because I asked about this later, like what was going on there? Um, they were deer hunting um, and they had shotguns because you weren't allowed to use rifles because there was just too many people out there. 
They used shotguns with slugs in them, but... And they had this skirmish line. <laughs> I am not kidding. You think I'm making this up? It's true. They had this skirmish line, and they were moving across this field towards these woods with the hope of, like, driving some deer out of this little patch of woods towards the other hunters who were laying on the other side with their shotguns, right? You guys with me in the picture? It was the weirdest thing. I was like, who would want to go? I mean, like, it's like, yeah. <laughs> who would want to do that? So it's way different than I've seen hunting here. But it's been a pretty common, like, tactic. If you look at indigenous peoples throughout the world, like, you know, I think the Native Americans here in, the, in North America, like, like, would drive, like, would drive, like, the buffalo off of a cliff. At least I read about that in school. That must be true. Um, <laughs> to, like, get a bunch of buffalo. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, I think it's important for us because I think as Christians who for so many years in this country have enjoyed like relative peace and safety and comfort and, um, and we haven't experienced much persecution, that I think it's easy for us to, to be like those deer in that forest. And we so long to have a home in this world that when we feel pressure from one side coming at us, that we just want to run to the other side and like completely like like find our home there. You know, and whatever, whichever direction, I've seen Christians go either direction. They, they rightly diagnose like sins on this side of the things and so they run over here and other people are rightly diagnosing sins on this side of things and they run over there and they're just like deer being led to the slaughter. You know, there's a, there's a huge difference. Like when Jesus says you're not of this world, like the, there's a huge difference between like trying to find our home in some political party or in some movement or in something and finding our home in Jesus Christ. In fact, like we're to, we're to abide in the vine. And Jesus Christ is going to be, if we're abiding in Christ and reflecting Christ, um, there will be times in this world, just like there was for him, where we're going to have to live in that place of tension where people just aren't happy with us. You know, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, and Peter was one of those guys who was like, he was definitely kind of like an impulsive, sort of like extreme sort of personality that would... But listen to what he says. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now listen, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. It's interesting. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Look what he tells us to do. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, when you feel the pressures of like not being of this world coming upon you and the pressures of people wanting to conform you to like idolatries and ideologies that, that aren't like reflecting Jesus Christ, the first thing you need to do is renew your own like devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Like sanctify Christ as Lord. Step number one. It's interesting. You know, so if, if you're feeling like all these conflicting ideologies and all this pressure, in fact, that word persecution means to like chase or pursue like game. If you're feeling that in your life, before you go running to some like earthly solution, what Peter says is set Christ, that's what the word sanctify means, set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. Like renew your commitment to him and your allegiance to him. Step number one. Step number two, 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you. He's like, we should be a people who have such deep hope because our allegiance is to Jesus Christ that it doesn't make sense to the people around us. And we should be ready to make a defense of that. And then he says, verse 16, and keep a good conscience. Oh no, sorry. For the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which, they, in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So these are people that are intimidating the people of God. These are people who are troubling the people of God. These are people who are slandering the people of God and who are reviling the people of God. And what does Peter say how we should respond? With gentleness and reverence and a clean conscience, which is like our, our culture today. Yeah, that was a joke. You guys can laugh at this now. Really? Did that not, was that not funny at all, that sarcasm? Yeah, that was the worst thing I've ever dropped here. So it's probably because I'm sitting down. You know, I think that's really important, that gentleness and reverence and clean conscience is important because it's very possible for us as Christians to suffer, suffer not because we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ and abiding in Christ, but just because we're jerks. Right? In fact, Peter says that. Uh, very next verse. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's this really interesting statement that Peter's saying, like, it is so important for us as Christians who are not of this world, who are being conformed to the image of Christ, to, like, in, like, to, to bear up under mistreatment and persecution and misunderstanding and accusation and all of those things well, because Christ died for sins once for all. Like the mission of the gospel is dependent upon it. The just for the unjust. Like Jesus responded with grace and kindness and gentleness to the unjust so that he could bring us to God. Like what Jesus is saying here is like, yeah, don't be surprised if the world mistreats you. The world's going to hate you because I've chosen you out of the world. Our identity, our allegiance, our, our life needs to be found in Christ and in him alone. Don't fall prey to this idea that, that uh, the things that you really long for in life are going to be found by like swinging to, to one extreme or the other. So I've got like some three hours just to remind us of what Peter says. If you aren't, like if, if, when you feel the pressure of this world upon you, if you aren't running to Jesus Christ, if you aren't renewing your hope in him, if you aren't responding in gentleness and reverence with a clear conscience, then you're going in the wrong direction. Because what Peter says here is that, is that that's how we respond when people like rise up to mistreat us. You know, Jesus goes on in verses, um, where is it? Uh, verses 22 through 24. And, and he, he talks something about his work. It's kind of an interesting thing that he does here. He says this. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. 
So Jesus brings up two things. He talks about, first of all, him coming in among them. And he says that they would not, if I hadn't done that, they wouldn't have sinned. He's not saying that, like, if he wouldn't have showed up, like, the people that he came to would be completely innocent and sinless. What he's saying is this, is that the fact that he came physically among them, the fact that he spoke to them, he gave his word to them, the fact that in verse um, Where is it? So verse 22 is spoken. Oh, in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else has done, the fact that I have given them God's word and my word, the fact that I have like demonstrated the character of God and, and the purpose of God through my works, like there is no excuse. There is no excuse that the nation of Israel has that, that G, when since Jesus has been upon them because he has come as the light in the world and what he's done is he's exposed their hearts as being those who not hate not just him but hate the father who sent him. So when you're, if you're here and you're confronted with the work of Jesus Christ and you, and you see Jesus in all of his glory and you reject him, just know that you're rejecting like life, you're rejecting Jesus, you're saying like I hate God himself. Because Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. But then he says this, verse 25, But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's a pretty interesting statement because Jesus obviously like believes in the law as well. But he calls it their, their law. He's like, even according to the rules that they live by, like I'm innocent. And yet they hate me, but they did it. Why? to fulfill what was spoken about him. Like even in their rejection, like God's redemptive purposes are, are going on. So what, one of the things you see here about Jesus in these verses is that, is that not, he's not only the light of the world that exposes the sins of the world and, and by exposing the sin of the world, um, he, he brings like judgment upon them, but he's also the lamb of God, John says in John 1, who takes away the sin of the world for all who place their faith in him. And that's what he's talking about there is them hitting with him a cause and him being the innocent spotless lamb being offered up um, for their sin. What Jesus is saying is like, if we're going to truly walk as his disciples, we should expect to be treated the same way he was treated. You know, as we get into the second point here, that the, the conduct of our, our life in Christ, he, he begins to talk about this a little bit more. Um, in verse 26, he, he starts talking about the helper. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, the disciples had already been told like earlier in this, like, this evening that Jesus was going to be leaving. So it'd be, it'd be easy to think like, oh, well, this is good news. Like, because of Jesus and our identification with Jesus, we're going to be persecuted. But since Jesus is leaving, it's going to be smooth sailing, right? Like, you guys with me on that? But what Jesus says here is that's not the case because verse 26, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. That's the helper. He calls him the spirit of truth. Holy Spirit is the one who speaks the truth about who we are, speaks the truth about this world. He speaks the truth about who Jesus is that's most important that the Spirit is going to come testify. Then he says this, and you're going to bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to his disciples who become the, the kind of the apostles that lay the foundation for the church. And he says, you were witnesses from the very beginning. 
you'll have the Holy Spirit. You're going to lay this groundwork for the people of God and, and this church that I'm going to build. Uh, the, this all applies to us. Like we will be his witnesses too. So here's the reality is that if we're going to like live in this world and be faithful to the mission of Christ, it says that we will bear witness to Jesus Christ. And anytime we lift up Jesus Christ, what should we expect? Anybody? Yeah, opposition to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ received opposition. So this reality is, is that, is that like one of the things that we need to be committed to as God's people is to, is to like continue to lift up Jesus Christ to this world as the hope of this world, even in the face of opposition. And then he says this in 16.1. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. What Jesus is saying is like, there's going to be all sorts of temptations. And when you begin to feel the pressure of, of this world on you, of this world, of the world systems, of all their ideologies upon you, there's going to be this opportunity. I think some of your translations read to fall away. Um, I think the better translation is to like stumble or trip or be a, or, or over something. There's going to be this real opportunity when the pressure comes for us to like back out of what we're supposed to do. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You need to realize the cost of what it's going to be to follow me so that you don't stumble. Because if we, if we swallow this like message that, oh, if you just believe Jesus, everything's going to be like great and you're just going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and you'll never have like a hurt leg and have to sit when you're preaching and you'll, <laughs> Right? No, Jesus does just the opposite. Like if you want to not stumble as you follow Jesus, you need to, you need to realize like, like that may cost you something. And you can't just like, you, and if you're unwilling to pay that cost, you probably will stumble and you'll just either be like separate yourself from the world or you'll accommodate yourself to the world instead of being faithfully present in the world as witnesses to Jesus Christ. You don't want to go that way. And then he says this, verse 2, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone, who's, everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Think about that for a second. First thing he says is that, is that um, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. The synagogue was the center of like Jewish life and and if it was, it'd be like getting kicked out of like the Better Business Bureau, your church, like your school, um, all of it put together. Your, your business would suffer, your social relationships would suffer, you're just going to be moved to the margins of society as one of those people. And you'll be excluded and outcast. And Jesus says that they're going to do that, and it's going to get even worse. He uses this expression an hour in verse two, an hour is coming. And then he says it down in verse four, when their hour comes. And just look what he says around this hour. He says, an hour is coming for everyone who, th who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. What he's saying there is that there will be a time when the people who most deeply and, and the kind of fanatically and and genuinely and sincerely hold to these ideologies that they'll be genuine and passionate about what they believe and they'll think that they're actually doing the right thing by excluding you and even killing you. And I don't think he's just talking about like Islamic extremism or something like that. 
there's people all around us who passionately and earnestly believe what they believe, and they think they're doing, like, God a favor. They're, they're worshiping by excluding and, and persecuting the church. A couple things that I think are important for us to realize with that. First of all, like, just because somebody passionately and earnestly believes something and genuinely believes it doesn't mean that it makes it, doesn't make it right. Right? We tend to think that in our culture. We tend to think, well, as long as you hold it genuinely and passionately, like it's good for you. Well, maybe. But here Jesus is saying, like, oh, there are people all around you that their motives aren't bad. They actually think they're, they're doing the right thing. And yet they're opposing, like, God himself as they persecute the people of God. But then he says this about the hour in verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes. This isn't just an hour, a time. He says when their hour comes. There will be a time in this world when it feels like the powers of darkness, these ideologies that raise up, the, the idols that everybody worships, will be so genuinely held by everyone that they'll think they're doing the right thing by persecuting the church, and it's going to feel like it's their hour, like evil has won the day. Do you see that? When their hour comes, remember, that I told you of them. Jesus is like, this isn't a surprise. You should know these things. And in fact, when, when they come, I've already warned you about it ahead of time. It's not, the plan's not breaking down. Like, we aren't losing. Like, my purposes are still going forward. And, and the things that we're going to unfold in the next couple of days, we're going to prove that beyond a shadow of doubt because in just a day, the, I guess just the next day, like darkness would literally fall over the land. Evil would literally be triumphing as they nailed Jesus to the cross and killing the, killed the Son of God. Unknown to them, when darkness fell over the land and when Jesus breathed his last, that he would overcome evil forever with that. Same thing's true of us. I think we, by, by using that expression, like their hour and an hour, he's tying that into his own death, burial, and resurrection because that's the terminology that he used over and over again to describe his crucifixion. When you like walk in the footsteps of Jesus and it feels like evil's winning the day, know that he, he told us about this ahead of time and his plan is not being diverted. So I've got just a couple, I've got just a couple places of application. Some of these are, are um, ones that you've heard before, but I've got like an extra minute or two. Like this is bonus scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. I don't have this on my slides or anything. I don't think. Isaiah 8, starting at verse 12. Uh, starting at verse 11, actually. Isaiah 8, 11. Navigate on your devices which I love the sound of pages turning. That's, that's a great sound. So, some good programmer needs to program that into the app. So. <laughs> reason why I love it is because it shows that you're not just taking my word for it, because I could just be making stuff up up here. Um, unless you're looking in the book, like you're, you don't know if, if it's true or not. But listen to what, listen to what Isaiah's, God says through Isaiah in verse, starting at verse 11. 
For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. What did you hear that? Like, I was reading it to Rachel, like, I think yesterday, and she's like, I wonder what it says in the other translations. And I think they all say conspiracy, right? Like, you're not to be all, like, flustered about, like, all of the crazy things that are going on in this world. Don't, don't, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call it a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. That expression, the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of the armies of heaven. It's the Lord of hosts that you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Do you guys hear that? In fact, that verse, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. That's the verse that Peter quoted when he says, you're not to feel their intimidation. He's quoting from Isaiah 8 here. He says, but when we honor the Lord, and this is the first point of application, is, is if you're feeling the pressure of this world against you and against your like, walk with Christ and you're feeling the hostility of the world, I've already said this, but it's to renew your like, allegiance to Jesus. He should be the one that we regard as holy. He's the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of the armies of heaven. He's the one that we should fear. He's the one that we should dread. Like the Lord of hosts is going to come with the armies of heaven and he's going to put an end to all of this like nonsense one day. Then he will become a sanctuary. We'll experience his peace and his protection. And then he goes on. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Those words are quoted multiple times in the New Testament to describe Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, because he came in as a king that they didn't expect, that the house of Israel stumbled over him. What he's saying is like, if we put God in, our, in his proper place in our heart, then Jesus Christ himself becomes a sanctuary for us. If we don't, we stumble over this cost of what it means to follow him. Don't call it a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Like fear and revere and trust the Lord. Jesus said it this way, like to, to Peter. In John 6, you know, that Jesus said a bunch of stuff to the crowds. He was really popular. Everybody was following Jesus. Jesus, like, taught a hard message, and everybody, like, bailed on him. And he, and he said this in John 6 to Peter, or to the 12. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, the only place we have to go is to him. Like, nobody else is going to give us the life that we long for. You know, not only do we need to renew our, our commitment to Jesus, but we, knew, we need to renew our confidence in the gospel. Jesus said that he came and he spoke to them and he did the works of them. We need to, re, we need to like renew our commitment to the gospel because the, the, the word and work of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation, period. Paul said that, in, or Peter said that. Oh, that's not the verse that I have on the screen. Paul said that in, in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. No matter who you are, 
It is the gospel that's God's power to save. That's how he calls people out of the light. And, and when the church was like faced with their first persecution in Acts chapter 4, this is what I have on the screen. When the church was faced with their first persecution, they came and they prayed. And this is what they prayed in regards to their persecution. They said, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all. What? Confidence. When the persecution came on them as a church, they weren't like, Lord, please take it away. Lord, they said, Lord, like, take note. Just, just pay attention, right? And they, they could trust the Lord that if he was paying attention, that the Lord would work it out. What they really prayed for was that they would speak God's word with all confidence because it's the power of God for salvation. Like, we need to, like... I think with the pressures of the world all around us, it's easy for us to lose our gospel nerve and to feel like, oh, like we just need to back off. We just need to like go hunker down. We just need to like, you know, whatever. Some people, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. We need to renew our gospel constantly. And we need to renew our commitment to God's will. Yehuda, you can come up as I finish here. But in 1 Peter 4, like Peter continues this theme of like suffering and he, and and this is a, such a great verse because he uses the word arm. Like in this conflict we're in, we need to arm ourselves. Look what he says. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with this same purpose. It's interesting. If you want to gear up for the conflict that's with us, arm yourself with the purpose of Jesus who was willing to suffer for the sake of like what was right. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Like, like It's kind of like this ultimate sort of thing. So as, here it is, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's like, you need to like be armed with this purpose of being willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way that we're going to be able to walk in the will of God, right? Don't live for the lusts of men. Don't be conformed to this world, but live for the will of God. And then Peter like, continues on later on. He he talks about that, what the will of God looks like in the church. He speaks about walking in righteousness. He speaks about being part of God's redemptive purposes in the gospel. He speaks about praying to that end. He speaks about fervently loving each other and serving each other. And then he says this, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Spirit of glory is this idea of the spirit of God's like character shining out through you and that light coming out through you, when the light comes out through you, sometimes you're going to be reviled for it because men love what? Darkness rather than light. You know, so as we, as we close this, like, I guess I just want to encourage you to those things, to, to reaffirm your commitment to Jesus, to renew your confidence in the word of God and the gospel. It's the, it's the power of God for salvation. It's where life comes and we can't lose our gospel nerve. And renew your commitment to God's will that even if it means that, that we follow him in some hard days to come. That was Jesus' like words for his disciples. So you, why don't you close this, then I'll close this in prayer.